Hello and welcome to the first episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is John Schwartzman, an Academy Award nominee whose range in style and genre will come as a surprise to many. Schwartzman is a cinematographer whose work includes Armageddon, The Amazing Spider-Man, and Pearl Harbor, to name a few. And in our conversation, we cover a wide range of topics, from his early experience at USC's film school to his longtime collaboration with friend and director Michael Bay, the most recent Jurassic World installment, and even talk about one of his upcoming projects, a little movie titled Star Wars Episode 9. Guys, I really want to thank Scott Feinberg and Jeff Goldsmith for inspiring me to start our very own series of conversations, and to all of our guest publicists who helped out to make sure these conversations could take place. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation with Mr. John Schwartzman. So John, first off, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, it's to my pleasure. It's fantastic. I was going to start just by asking you, uh, where were you born and raised and what did you folks do for a living? I was born here, okay. not actually here in West Los Angeles. I grew up here. My mother was a housewife and my father was one of the first entertainment attorneys in Hollywood. So he was in the film business, but not really in the film business. I mean, I didn't grow up on film sets, but I. But my dad was the guy who negotiated the deals for all of these big, at the time, big directors. He was a very, very successful entertainment attorney and one of the first. He was Stanley Kubrick's lawyer and a, and a bunch of people. Not that I, later in my life, I that it paid off, but certainly as a kid growing up, my dad was a lawyer. You know, the fact was that he represented directors and actors and producers, some of whom I met when they would come over to the house. But running around the back lot of Warner Brothers was not my how I grew up. But you still have you, you have a background in, in painting, right? And painting and photography. photography. Yeah. yeah, that's what I read. I mean, I was uh, I my parents were liberal and um, they encouraged the arts. So and I was at a, I went to a school called elementary school called UES which is part of the UCLA Department of Education. It still is a, it's a really great elementary school. In the 60s, it was a developmental school. Mm -hmm. uh, so they really encouraged the arts. And one of my paintings when I was like in fifth grade went on some uh, children, went to the children's art collection at the San Francisco Museum of Art. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the visual arts, right? Right. Uh, and I got into photography, I think it's summer camp when I was like 12 you know, learning how to develop film. And um, I remember as a kid growing up, a kid down the street had a dark room, like the, the father had turned part of the garage into a dark room. And, you know, I would take, we would take pictures, not necessarily good ones, but I, I got my hands wet with developing my own triax negative and then making prints at night at home. And I continued doing that all the way through high school. And then I went away to the University of Colorado for undergraduate school. It helped me develop a certain discipline in understanding light and understanding how to use a light meter and what a light meter was going to tell me and how I wanted to place the exposure within a, a scene that was not necessarily placing the skin tones at 18% gray, because maybe I wanted to put somebody in silhouette. It was just understanding that these are all tools that you use to sort of allow you to take an image or, or make an image that you see in your mind's eye, right? And yeah. I think that one of the things that I think is harder now for the younger cinematographers is because you have a, a monitor, 
uh, you don't have to pre-visualize the image to the same degree that you used to with film, right? Where you really, you had to see it in your mind's eye and then you went to a set and you, it was all about achieving what you saw in your mind's eye and it required, film required a higher degree of technical expertise and discipline than, than digital photography does to, to make an image. Not necessarily to make a good image, but to make an image you had to have a better understanding of just the techniques of how photochemistry Yeah, worked. how to get there. I'm sure there was like the panic of sending it to the lab and hoping it would... All of that and hoping it came back yeah. either perfect as opposed to all white or all black, right. you know? And certainly early in your career, you're constantly not sure whether you can trust yourself. But, you know, as you, as you become, as you have more and more successes, you start to relax a little bit. You know, it was Charlie Parker or John Coltrane said, you know, you learn your scales, you learn your scales, you learn your scales. Then when you go play, you forget your scales. And it's it's a little bit like that, you know. Uh, again, because my father was a professional, the film business was not really a business that he was encouraging me to get into because he represented a lot of, you know, these clients who might have had uh, one or two big movies as a director and all, all of a sudden their careers sort of ended, right? It's a very... It's a difficult business, certainly to have a long career in. Uh, it's a very difficult business. And I think he wanted me to be a lawyer or a doctor because the rest of my family are all doctors, uh, you know, to have a nice, a stable profession. Yeah. It's hard to rely on your instincts when you're first starting out, especially when you're first starting out and you're getting paid to do it because you're nervous that you're going to screw things up. You know, so you you're constantly checking and double checking and maybe maybe things were better before you futzed with them. And then all of a sudden you, you but you live and learn, you yeah. know, and you take you take more risks and hopefully those risks pay off. Yeah. Okay. At a certain point when I was in my late teens, my parents got divorced and now um, I'm off to college. My mom is living in the house that I grew up in Brentwood and my father's living in also in Brentwood. And you know they, they got along fine in their divorce. And then my father, uh, a couple of years later, uh, married the actress Talia Shire, who was in the Rocky movies. Well, Talia Shire is really Talia Coppola and her older brother is Francis Ford Coppola. And the Coppola family is a very, very warm and inviting family. So I was very much treated as though I was a member of that family. And Francis has this incredible winery up in the Bay Area in Napa Valley. And um, we would always go up to Napa for Thanksgiving, Christmas and Easter. It was a big family celebration. And I mean, cousins, uncles, and everyone was welcome. I mean, it's just a very much like the opening scene of The Godfather. Yeah. It really was like that. I mean, it was great. And as I was going through college at the University of Colorado, I was really starting to fall in love with film, but I wasn't, a, and I was, I was getting a degree in economics, but I didn't have the courage to tell my family that I wanted to pursue a career in film. You know, I, they thought I was gonna take my economics degree and apply to like UCLA Law School which I just had no desire. It just wasn't, I wanted, I, I had a passion for photography. So my senior year, Thanksgiving, I'm up in Napa and George Lucas, who was a protege of Francis, is right, Francis was the producer on uh, American Graffiti. I thought, well, this is my opportunity. I'm gonna ask these guys if, because I didn't, you know, at that time in 1982, it was harder to get into USC film school than it was to get into Harvard Medical School, wow. right? This is when 
like they were writing about USC Film School and Time Magazine, and it, you know, it just had exploded because of Zemeckis and Spielberg, who didn't go to USC, but somehow was always associated with USC. And it was this new wave of American filmmakers that were not the 70s guys like Arthur Penn, but this was the new wave of the guys that were making blockbusters. Obviously, George had come out with Star Wars since I think it was 77, and Steven had done uh, Jaws, which changed the way studios saw movies being released, right? That was really the when the blockbuster sort of mentality came around. So I thought, well, I'm, they're all here. I'm going to ask them if they'll write me letters of recommendation. And they said no. And they said, well, you know, we get so many, and this was both Francis and George. They said, we get so many requests and it would be a bit nepotistic if we wrote you a letter of recommendation. So I was a bit crestfallen, but as the night progressed, they were talking about, you know, and again, at Francis's, at any of the holidays, there was a lot of singing and playing show tunes and board games. Not a lot of, there was not multimedia back then. Remember, TV was still like, I think there was cable TV, but it wasn't like you sat around on a device, right? Francis was very much like, you know, we're all going to get together and play charades or we're going to do this. So they decided that we were going to play, hey, who wants to play Risk, the board game? Well, in the 80s, if you were in early 80s, if you were a young college student, you played a lot of Risk. It was a fun board game to play, right? It was an army maneuvering geography game. So when we sat down to play, I made them, because they were both seen, and these are two very bright men, that, you know, how good they were. And I said, okay, well, let's make this interesting. If I win, you write me a letter of recommendation to film school. And if I lose, I will be your servant for the next three days. And they said, okay, sure. Because they knew that there was no way that I was going to beat them. And I think I, at about two o'clock in the morning, my armies came out of the Ukraine and I won. Needless to say, I got into every film school that I applied to. Which was USC, UCLA, and NYU. In asking around, it just USC made the most sense. It was right ground zero of Hollywood. And it had this great network of people that had gone to USC that were working in the industry. It was kind of a no-brainer. And it was the best film school in the United States. And I still think it probably is. The first day you walk in over the main entrance, scrawled in dripping red letters was, reality ends here. And it was an incredible place because at the time it was small. And you were, I was in a graduate school with 30 other people in my year who had the same passion for filmmaking that I did. Uh, so on a Saturday, if somebody called you and said, hey, we're gonna do a little short, can you help out? We just need somebody to hold a bounce card. You were like, absolutely. You just wanted anything to do it, right? So it was, it was a great place to be. I was surrounded by like-minded people. And my experience there was spectacular. I mean, it was a, I loved every minute of it. I ran up against a different faculty and was ultimately sort of invited not to come back, but I enjoyed the whole experience. Once a week, you had a cinematography class, and at the time, it was taught by Gene Polito, and we, we, they would run the six, the dailies from all of the six cinematography students who were shooting 480s at the time, and then Gene would critique your work, and he never liked my work. He was constantly picking away at it, and, I, and I'll, I'm not afraid to say that my work was so much better than everybody else's at the time. 
And I remember one day, uh, again, and this is the beauty of USC, Caleb Deschanel came to the class and Caleb was a graduate of USC. Certainly as a young cinematographer, I was a huge fan of Caleb's work. I mean, being there and, um, you know, Black Stallion. I mean, these are incredible movies. I mean, he's a, he's a true artist. I mean, he was a great cinematographer, or is a great cinematographer. And I remember he watched everybody's dailies and after the class, I sort of cornered him and I said, you know, I said, Gene Polito hates my work. And this was the first time, and I've had this many moments in my career where somebody really, stepped forward and made a huge difference. And Caleb said to me, the day that Gene Polito likes your work is the day you're doing something wrong. Your work is fantastic, keep doing it. And I thought, okay, great. Now, cut to, I failed cinematography. So, you know, it's, I have a lot of these ironies in my career, right? You win a game of risk to get into film school, but I obviously proved that I was sufficiently talented enough that Three years later, I win what was then the equivalent of the Student Academy Award for Cinematography. Because of this network, I got out of USC Film School, living in an apartment with two other guys in Santa Monica, inexpensive lifestyle, looking for work. And they needed, you know, guys that would work for cheap, but also knew how to work as RESR, you know? So I did a lot of work for them, and I think they paid like 400 bucks a day, which to me was an incredible amount of money because I only needed about $1,100 a month to survive, right? That's all in. You know, this was, I was not going out for sushi. You know, this was, I was living a very modest lifestyle and I could work four or 10 days a month, right? So they kept a roof over my head for probably a year and a half. And then again, through my networking of friends from USC, I'd get a call, hey, do you want to work as an electrician on this Roger Corman movie, which I did. And I spent a summer on a very low budget Roger Corman movie called Stand Alone that by the end of it, I was the one crew member who had been there since day one. So I became the second unit director on that movie because I had I knew if I had to go out and do the driving shots, which way the car was supposed to be driving and, and where we should shoot it. And Roger was great about giving people with a sort of initiative and a little bit of talent and a little bit of intelligence an opportunity to, you know, advance. So I did that and I got a call to work on the second unit on Nightmare on Elm Street, part three. The cinematographer was a gentleman named Glenn Kershaw, whose wife was eight and a half months pregnant at the time. And he said to the producers, look, if, if my pager goes off and my wife goes into labor, I'm leaving. This is the guy pointing to me that should take over for me. He's actually a cinematographer. I know he's working as my electrician, but he's been here every day. He knows what the second unit entails. And he actually is working below his station uh, because he doesn't have any real big cinematography credits. He just shoots these behind the scenes, but he can certainly do the job. Of course, Glenn's pager goes off and I end up getting to shoot the last week as a cinematographer on Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. That then led me to sort of be known by these low budget producers as somebody who could come in and do additional photography. And, and I worked on a couple of really crappy horror movies. And fortunately for people like me, there was a market for young, hungry, talented, but not with the credits to get a major gig. So I did that for a little while. Uh, again, just working away. I never said no to anything. Cons sort of simultaneously, 
I had grown up with Michael Bay. My sister and Michael went to school together. My sister is four years younger than me. And my sister and Michael went to elementary, junior high, and high school together. So just as a, you know, just out of proximity, I got to know Michael growing up. He was a really good still photographer. He was taking headshots of young people who wanted to be actors. He is a visual guy. He's a good photographer. He understands uh, exposure. He he really he's he's got a great eye, and you can tell from the movies. That's not only me. That's Michael and I collaborating, and really, we both came from a kind of a still photography background. So we knew what looked good and what didn't. You didn't have to explain to Michael the difference between a 17 five millimeter lens and a hundred millimeter lens and what it was going to do. Yeah. He knew, he knew, okay, I want I want a close up that's close and wide as opposed to, I want to put the camera eight feet away, same image size, but I want to compress it, right? He understood what those things did in terms of film language. Michael graduated Wesleyan and went to Art Center College of Design into their film program, which was very small. And unlike USC, you could use anybody you wanted to help you with your projects, right? There were only, I think, 10 people in Michael's class. It was Michael and Tarsim and Larry Fong, who's now a cinematographer, and a few other people. But whereas at USC, you had to recruit your crew from within the student body. At least that's how it was when I went there, right? Everybody that worked on a USC film had to be a USC student. At Art Center, if you wanted to go hire Conrad Hall and you had the money, you could have, right? Art Center's mandate was, we want you to get out of here with an incredible showreel. So Michael and I started, I started shooting Michael's student films and he really was into doing slick work. So we did a lot of spec commercials. We did an Evian commercial. We did, I mean, we just, we would look and go, oh, we can do that. Oh, so-and-so's got a swimming pool. Let's go design a commercial around. And it was really about making 30 seconds of really kind of stylized images. It wasn't about storytelling in the traditional dramatic way, whereas at USC it was like, well, are you going to cut to the single or the over? And what about going back to the master? This was, this was a, su a succession of images that were trying to tell a story that Evian water was gonna make you feel good. And we did this Coca-Cola commercial in which we shot it on the USS Missouri, which was just parked in San Pedro. And because it was owned by the United States government, you could actually say to them, we would like to film here on Saturday. And if it wasn't being used, it was free. So we did this Coca-Cola commercial that was a reenactment of VJ Day with sailors and that famous, I think it was an Eisenstadt photo of the sailor kissing the nurse in Times Square. Well, we didn't do Times Square, we did it on the, on the, on the ship. That commercial was the last thing we did when Michael was at Art Center, and this was probably 1987. He took that commercial with his other co commercial, spec commercials on his reel and went around to the young, budding music video companies. And at the time, the hottest and hippest one was this one called Propaganda Films. And Propaganda Films had four directors at the time. It had David Fincher, Dominic Senna, Nigel Dick, and Greg Gold. And then the fifth one became Michael Bay. They saw his reel and they said, absolutely, come work with us. Fortunately, again, the, that same transition and from these young directors going from music videos to commercials, then they the film industry started getting a little interested, right? And there was this whole period where the film business was looking for young directors out of film school. 
Michael Bay being a perfect example. And uh, I just rode along with Michael and that's how we did The Rock. I didn't do Bad Boys, which was Michael's first movie because at the time my father was dying of cancer. So I didn't, I stayed and didn't do that. I had done, my first feature was a movie, my first real feature was a movie called Benny and June. It's like got a $10 million budget and it's got Johnny Depp and it's got Aiden Quinn. And it's like, wow, I'm now, my career is really moving forward. So it was fortunate for me that I did that. And then, so that was Benny and June, which got really good notices. And that suddenly got me recognized. I got an agent out of that. And I started to get scripts being sent, you know, to me, hey, we would, we really liked this movie. We have $10 million, which by the way, was a low budget studio movie back in 1990, right? It was, you could make a good movie for $10 million. Uh, you still can, but back then, that was gonna be a studio movie, it was gonna be a Warner Brothers movie, it was gonna be a Columbia movie, this was not an independent film. And that really got me, got really? me started. And, and it, it was all luck, none of this was planned. I just was, I was following the directors that I liked to work with. And a lot of, I had dinner last, two nights ago with a young cinematographer. And he, he was asking for my advice and I said, the best advice I can give you is, hitch your wagon to the best director that you know, because that's the fastest way to move through the ranks is to be with a young director. Colin Trevorrow, who I shot Jurassic World with, had done a movie for $500,000 before Jurassic World called Safety Not Guaranteed. Jurassic World's a $200 million movie. The, the daily shooting costs on Jurassic World were more expensive than one day on Safety Not Guaranteed. Now, unfortunately, on a movie like that, the cinematographer is not, who was young, is not gonna get to go on to Jurassic World because that's too big an investment. But I was fortunate that I was able to go from Benny and June, and then I did The Rock with Michael after that. So Jerry, was a big, big producer. I mean, he'd done all those Tony Scott movies. He'd done a Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop. I mean, we're talking about one of, the, he and Don Simpson were the two biggest producers in Hollywood. When I went to go do The Rock with Michael, and it was an expensive movie. It was like a $75 million movie with Sean Connery and Nick Cage. The studio did not want Michael to hire me. They didn't want, they didn't feel as though I had the credits for that kind of big movie. But Jerry had said to the studio, well, you like Michael's work, right? You like his showreel. And they said, God, we love it. Jerry said, well, John is the one who shot everything that's on Michael's reel. They're a really strong team. If you want this guy, you should keep the team together because otherwise you're not gonna get him, right? You're not gonna get what you want out of Michael unless you have the two of them together. And Jerry really stuck his neck out for me. I mean, I wouldn't have gotten that job there was no reason for Jerry to fight for me other than he believed that I was the right fit with Michael. He, Jerry's a smart producer and he saw that these guys as a team are really talented together. I, I've got to fight to preserve that because that's going to make this movie better than if we just stick Michael with a guy who's done, who's 58 years old, who's done 25 of these movies. If we give him Adam Greenberg, it's not gonna be the same thing because Adam's gonna come in with his own agenda. Michael and John sort of feed off each other and they're gonna come up with something unique and fresh. And that was a risk. I mean, Jerry was sticking his neck out on the line for me. He didn't have to. 
but um, but he did. And obviously the rest is sort of history. Michael and I were, again, we, so one of the great things about music videos was that you just needed three and a half minutes and most of the record companies didn't know whether it was good or bad. You could have shot through the base of the film and they would have thought it was cool. So we, between Michael and David Fincher, those two directors experimented with techniques. Like I can remember we did a music video where we did a lot of forced perspective miniatures in the foreground using wide angle close focus lenses. Sort of like I remember that moment in Monty Python and the Holy Grail and they're saying it's Camelot, it's Camelot and then Terry Gilliam turns and he goes, it's just a little model on a hill, right? It was understanding how to play with people's because cinematography is to take a three-dimensional world and to represent it in a two-dimensional way. And as a cameraman, you understand that there are tricks you can play, right? And people did it in the 40s. They did it in Citizen Kane. Um, we were trying to embrace those techniques. So, and obviously in music videos, to keep them interesting, we just, we moved the camera every which way we could. I mean. I made skateboard wheels that clipped on to the bottom of the camera. So on on the rock, when we were chasing the hand grenade, I just roll, and I know that a 45-year-old kid grew up and I said, you can't do that, it's gonna be too bumpy, it's gonna be too whatever. We didn't listen to any of those rules, and that's just what we did. There's a, in the rock, there's a sequence where Sean Connery has this quarter that he stamps under a chair, right, to break the glass. He's spinning the quarter in the foreground of a table on this angle. Now, the quarter is the size of a dinner plate, right? That Because we knew how to play with perspective. So we wanted the quarter and Sean to be in focus. So we knew we had to come up with a larger quarter and we wanted this kind of weird perspective out of it. So we just, we, we were playing with techniques and tools and using them, I think, on that movie that people had never done in that kind of way before. And we both on The Rock played with, as I used to say, it's either gonna be the 70 millimeter lens or the 300. We a lot of people would say, you can't keep jumping between super long lenses and super wide lenses. We didn't play by any rules. We just played by what we thought was gonna look interesting and make the scene dynamic and compelling, right? I didn't, no one said, oh, you can't mount a camera like that to a car. You know, I we just were like, wow, it'd be cool to do that, right? I've never seen it before. How do we do it? The nice thing is on a movie like The Rock, the stuff that's not good isn't in the movie. There's enough good stuff in there. And I think that that movie changed the way or certainly changed the style of action movies. I think it's a I think it's a absolute landmark in terms of a stylistic action piece, because if you look after that, there's Con Air and Gone in 60 Seconds and all these other action movies that very much embraced the style and the sort of, and the, and the filmic language that we came up with for that movie. When Nick Cage is diving after that VX ball, it's the size of a basketball. But that's also understanding that on a 10 millimeter lens, I can put a giant ball in the foreground and have Nick in the background. And as he jumps, he's gonna grow five image sizes because of the field of view of the lens, right? It was just understanding how to- Play with it. How to play with it, yeah. right? We were young. Uh, I think I was 33 when we made The Rock. Michael was 30. We used to joke about how together we weren't even as old as Sean Connery and they had given us $80 million to blow up a cable car in Russian Hill. You know, we couldn't believe that they were giving us all this money to do this stuff.
right? There's a sequence in when the fighter planes are flying towards uh, Alcatraz to drop the thermite plasma device. So we had a mock-up of a um, F-14 or whatever it was, or F-16, I can't remember whichever the model number of the plane was, which we rented from someplace. And it's just like the cockpit, right, with the glass canopy. And it was the, the actor for that scene was Jim Caviezel, who went on to become Jesus. But we then got, we built little model airplanes from Ravel of F-16s, and we hung them out the window on fishing wire, and we shot it in a parking lot at, um, at what used to be Marineland, which is now the Donald Trump golf course, right? We just figured, hey, if we shoot him wide and close, we can take model airplanes that are this big, and we can put four more airplanes out the window. Because remember, there could have been a visual effect sequence, but then they would have had, they would have shot model planes, motion control, it would have been a very expensive thing. And Michael and I were both like, hey, why don't we just hang some model airplanes from some wire out the window, you'll never see the wires. And that way he can be flying and saying, yeah, I'm 15 seconds away from dropping the bomb. And you see two other or three other airplanes out the window and it worked perfectly. I mean, it absolutely does. For the seven seconds. So we took great pride in, in doing that. Now, one of the reasons why that movie was wide angle was because at the time the student studio would not allow us to shoot anamorphic. It's a widescreen 240 movie, but they felt like we were, I mean, literally like too young to understand how to use anamorphic lenses, which was of course wrong. But when you're young filmmakers, you pick your battles. So we shot it in Super 35, you know, which is a way of cropping basically a 240 aspect out of a regular flat 35 millimeter image which means that you're sort of, you're blowing the image up when you project it because you're not using all of the negative area that you would in anamorphic. But it does allow you to use spherical lenses, which are the wider lenses. So we embraced, it was like whatever we had, we use it to our advantage, right? Whenever we tried to, or at least we thought we were. And I think in that movie, it works. I mean, we understood how to, how to make lenses work. We understood the, the techniques of, using extreme foreground to uh, create depth cues, to use ways of how to create space with shadow and, you know, with how to use hard light, how to use soft light, how to use, you know, put fluorescence in the shot. We did a lot of stuff with little broken mirror shards to kind of come up with this weird uh, reflections. And, you know, uh, again, no one was saying you can't do it. And Jerry Bruckheimer protected us from the studio. I don't think the studio, I think they liked everything we were doing, but I don't think that they would have ever understood it if they came to set and wondered why there's a guy in the corner breaking mirrors and gluing them onto a piece of wood and then they're bouncing the light off the mirror. Right. You know, that was a technique that you would see a still guy do. And that was a technique that we would do in commercials, but it was, I don't think if you walked onto a Hollywood soundstage, you'd see somebody smashing mirrors and, and bouncing lights into them, right? It was like, oh man, remember when we did this? Oh like, yeah, let's, that'd be cool, let's do that, okay. Hey, you know, say to my grip, hey, do you got any mirrors on the truck? He's like, yeah, I'm like, okay, bring them over, we're gonna smash them. He's like, oh, that's a lot of bad luck, but you know, you would just, you embraced it and we didn't self-censure, you know, we, 
we just we did what we thought was going to be um, best for the film, best for the film, and was going to be and was going to that we thought was going to be cool. Action movies tend to have big schedules because you know in a scene with the three of us, we may have seven setups. But in a car chase scene, you may have 170 setups. So even though it's only this much in the script, it may be three eighths of a page. And generally speaking, the old rule of thumb in Hollywood was two pages a day. Two pages of dialogue a day is what you did. So if the if I was doing conspiracy theory with Richard Donner, that was like a 70 day schedule or a 68 day schedule for a 128 page script, right? That was sort of the rule of thumb. Then when you get into big action movies, obviously, there's a multiplication effect that goes on. I mean, Pearl Harbor was 168 days, wow. you know, but, so but you know, yeah. you know, there's only what is it? It's eight pages and it's like the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. Well, that was, you know, 40 days of shooting. Michael goes very fast. Right. So and Michael has very little patience. So but again, he's got a great eye for light. So the difference is. On some movies, you show up in the morning with a director and you're shooting a day exterior and you're kind of explaining to him, no, 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 we need to start shooting towards the east in the morning and then we'll finish in the day towards the west because we want to shoot in backlight because it's going to make the actors' faces look better. We won't have to fill in the shadows as much and we can move more quickly. With Michael, you never have to worry about that. I mean, Michael, he kind of gets out of the car. He knows which direction we're supposed to look. Rather than doing a scene five times to get the performance right, Michael will do five different setups. He just goes, 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 goes. I mean, it is fast. We call it the, we, the, the term we call it is bayos. It's not chaos, it's bayos on set. And he just goes, goes, goes. And you know, you, you have to move very quickly. You're literally throwing cameras on the ground and you're running. You're running and gunning. You're exhausted at the end of the day, but you're never bored. What with a guy like Connery? And you see so much. He got very frustrated. Sean Connery was a traditional actor. And he would, about every four weeks, we'd have to have a meeting with the assistant director and Michael and everybody and Sean. And Sean would say, look, you know, this is how it's going to be. We're going to rehearse and we're going to put the marks down and then I'm going to go to hair and makeup and then when the technicians are done, I'm going to come back and we're going to shoot the scene. And Michael would go, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he'd leave and it was like, let's go. And Sean was very difficult. Uh, and Jerry Bruckheimer, God love him, put a sizzle reel together, cut like 12 minutes of The Rock together because Sean was becoming a bit testy. And he sort of has a reputation for being a difficult person. Uh, he was never difficult with me, but he was difficult with Michael. But Jerry showed him like 12 minutes of the movie. So Sean Connery likes a certain amount of order in his day. But the one thing that Sean Connery likes even more than that is money. And when Sean saw the 12 minutes, he realized, oh my God, this, this is exciting. There's something here that's really good that I haven't seen in a long time. I'm just gonna have to suffer through the next 50 days because I can't, I'm not, I'm never gonna change this guy, right? Even though he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just not how he works. Michael, we could be setting this up and if he saw something over there, he'd suddenly say, give me the C camera over here right now. And you just, you know, and you, you know, you don't go, well, Michael, but we're in the process. You just, you go, okay. And you just do it, right? So I used to give Michael his own camera 
while I was doing a big sequence if I was laying dolly track and setting up a crane, I had a third camera always for Michael and a camera assistant so that he could run over and stay busy. He just doesn't sit well, right? He's got a lot of energy. Yeah. And he's a good photographer. So it was always great. If I needed 30 minutes to set up the techno crane and the thing and 100 feet of dolly track and work out with the stunt guy, that stuff, I could keep Michael occupied by having him shoot inserts of, a, of bullets coming out of a gun. Right. You know? What I think is like fantastic, regardless of how much people enjoy the films in the end, the reason I think that it's important on a photography level to study them is the way you two create layers of depth parallax, you know, camera movement, uh, characters, you know, small characters on large backgrounds. There's so much going on. They're always activating in the foreground, middle ground, and, and background. Yeah. And the camera movement really. Well, I think I think that I don't. There's very few times when we would shoot a static close-up, right? It would either be drifting in, and even if we drifted in, we were always doing a little parallax shift because we loved this idea of the background kind of moving made the characters a little more unsettled, and it was something we just constantly embraced. So, you know, and this is before things like a slider existed, right? Now it's a lot easier if I was just with Michael, if you're shooting a close-up of you, I could just be on the slider and just keep it going, you know, like that. And you, we just, we did that on Armageddon. We did that on Pearl Harbor um, because we both felt that it was just a dynamic way to go. You know, on Pearl Harbor, we did a lot of handheld with uh, a little IMO, you know, a 50 year old uh, Bell and Howell wind up camera, just because it gave us a certain energy. We had seen, Michael had seen um, Saving Private Ryan and obviously loved, I mean, the opening of Saving Private Ryan is, you know, one of the masterpieces of filmmaking of the last 25 years, right? I mean, that sequence uh, landing on, you know, on the beach at Omaha Beach is, it's, nothing comes close. So obviously we were doing Pearl Harbor, we were, in, we had seen it, so we didn't want to copy it, but we did want to borrow the things from it that worked, like a, when the shutter and the movement are slightly out of sync and you get that, I was a little more reluctant to do that than Michael was, but he, you know, obviously he's the director, he wins out. Uh, I did on that movie, we had done a lot, so swing and tilt lenses, do you know what those are? They're like what come on a large format camera and they allow you to take the rear element of the lens and not have it parallel to the film plane. When you mount a lens on a motion picture camera, everything's in perfect alignment so that the image coming out of the back of the lens is flat to the film plane. A swing and tilt lens allows you to change the angle of how the image is gonna hit the film plane. So that's when you see that thing where an eyeball is in focus, but the rest of the image is kind of smeared out. Now you can create that in post-production, but in the old days, you did that with a sort of bellows type of lens mount. And we actually built one, we built one for Pearl Harbor that went on the Steadicam that I could actually adjust while we were filming. We did a sequence after the Japanese had, had attacked. In the hospital. In the hospital, yeah. Michael had cast a lot of amputees. And then the uh, the makeup people put like, you know, bones and spurting blood. I mean, it was a very graphic sequence as Pearl Harbor really was. And when you think about, and you know, God knows you turn on the TV, you can see how graphic war is, right? Just Disney was, was concerned that we were gonna lose our PG-13 rating because it was so intense. So I came up with this idea of using the swing and tilt lens to be able to manipulate what was in and out of focus. So you got the 
horror of the intensity of it, but in terms of what you were actually seeing graphically, you weren't you you were thinking that you were seeing a lot more than you really were. Like with, you know, as Alfred Hitchcock did in Psycho, when you really look at all those frames, they're they're just frames. When it's put together, you fill in the pieces in between. Not in any way am I saying that that sequence has anything to do with like Psycho, but I was just trying to utilize, again, the techniques of photography that I understood and Michael understood to allow us to tell a story in a way that no one had ever done before. And to, I think also it made it more like a, a privileged, weird point of view. That was the thinking behind that. And then, you know, obviously Pearl Harbor was just, it was a lot of explosions and smoke. And I had spoken to Michael about, hey, why don't we try to keep the ground as wet as possible? It's Hawaii, so you can justify it. Because then whatever is in the sky is reflected on the ground. So I think, you know, again, like you were saying, building those layers, not only were we trying to have a wall of fire behind them, but then if you're panning, you could see them running across that same fire on the ground. And that just comes from, like you said, we are both attracted to foreground, middle ground, background, really creating this sense, as we call them, depth cues, giving the audience and trying to paint a really big canvas. First of all, you spend a lot of hours on a film set. So you try to put together a group of people, your camera department, your electrical department, and your grip department, that all both are good at their jobs, but also work well with each other, right? The last thing you want to do is be the kindergarten teacher telling the kid to stop hitting the other kid, right? So that, because there's enough you have enough stress in your day that you, and then obviously over the course of a career, like Les Tamita has been my key grip since The Rock. Not only do I have great respect for his abilities, but he's also, I can use a shorthand. Hey, you remember? Oh yeah, yeah. Or I've got it on the truck. You mean the thing that we built for Armageddon, the spring head? Yeah, 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 I'll get it off the truck. Um, or he would, or he may, you know, recommend to me, hey, why don't we do, let me get the spider dolly out, you know, I think it'd be great for this. So you, you trust these people. And the irony is that if I was doing The Rock today, there's no way I could shoot it the way I did in 1994. I just am not that same person anymore, right? I, I couldn't, it would still be a compelling movie, but I made that movie when I was 33 years old. I was in a different headspace. It was a different world. I had a different amount of experience. Um, and I couldn't, I mean, I look at it and I, I, it's on all the time. And I go, man, that's a, God, that's a good movie. Who the hell shot that? You know, because I, I don't see, I see it and I know I did it. But I'm thinking to myself, God, what was I thinking when I was doing this? Or God, I wouldn't I'd do it differently today. But I'm glad I'm not doing it today because I still love the work. Um, I don't know if I would do Seabiscuit today the way I did it back then. You know, I really love shooting anamorphic. Now that came out of movies used to be projected on film in a theater. So the way to get the best looking image was to shoot anamorphic because you were using the entire 133 negative area, right? You were using all of the negative. So you had more real estate to capture light. And then that squeezed image went into a projector with a lens that unsqueezed it to show it to an audience. So the difference is that Armageddon looks twice as good as the rock in terms of if you put it on a machine 
and you looked at it like if you looked at it on a, on a micrometer, there's twice as many silver crystals in Armageddon because we're using the whole negative area as opposed to a little slice and then projecting it on a big screen. So when Michael and I on our I what happened was after the rock I went into conspiracy theory. Richard Donner was an anamorphic guy and I'm looking at the images and I'm going, man, the colors are just so much richer and the blacks are blacker and it just has got I'm looking at it projecting and it's so beautiful. And then I was like, oh of course. It's like the difference between 16 and 35. I mean, literally, it is that almost that much more negative area. So all the way through, I was shooting, when, when we were releasing in film, I was always pushing for anamorphic, just to get a better looking image. I also like the 2-4-0 aspect ratio. I think it's actually more intimate. I think you can shoot two close-ups in the same frame. I find it less cutty than 185. That's just my own personal feeling. But on Seabiscuit, I decided to shoot Super 35 because, again, that field of view and the energy. I knew that it was going to be more exciting to put the camera low off of an insert car on a 21mm lens in front of a horse, even though the horses in the background were going to fall off and become smaller. But that energy of that horse galloping in the foreground was going to feel more visceral than if I was on a 40mm anamorphic lens, which would have the same horizontal width, right? Um, and that was where I was utilizing, again, my skills, understanding field of view and photography and what lenses can do. The other thing was that that was right when the digital intermediate was starting. So actually, Seabiscuit was the first time I ever scanned a negative and I color corrected it digitally. And in doing the digital scan, you didn't get a lot of the problems that you got with doing an optical squeeze for a Super 35 movie, because it had to be released as an anamorphic movie, which meant that you had to put it on an optical printer and squeeze it into the 240 size so that it could be run on a, on a regular projector at a cinema. So the nice thing was that when we did a few tests, I realized that squeezing it in the DI didn't give me the same uh, problems of, of making duplicates that you got from doing it the old photochemical way. Yeah. I mean, I've done a couple movies non-anamorphic, but that was the first time I really chose for um, story reasons, for, for, for storytelling reasons to do it that way. And obviously it was successful. I won the ASC award for it and got nominated for an Academy Award. So I think I made the right choice. And I think the horse racing sequences are quite exciting in that movie. On a period movie, anamorphic also helps you because, the, because you're using essentially a, a, for, a factor of twice the focal length, right? So what is a 20 millimeter lens in spherical is now a 40 millimeter lens in anamorphic to hold the same field of view. That means a 40 millimeter lens has less depth of field than a 20. So the nice thing is, and we use that to our advantage on Pearl Harbor, where a lot of, a lot of Pearl Harbor was shot in Los Angeles and San Pedro for Honolulu. And I could utilize the shallower depth of field of anamorphic to get the backgrounds to go out of focus. So you didn't notice that that was an Amco transmission shop two blocks farther away. It just became what they call a bouquet, an out of focus color. And we utilized that a lot to help us because again, there was a little bit of CGI around Pearl Harbor, but if you were gonna paint something out of a background, that was, a, that was an unheard of cost, you know? Art departments would build giant flats in front of things before you would say, oh, don't worry, we'll fix it later. You know, yeah, that technology just wasn't there. 
But you and John Hancock, what I think that's great is that you're getting a lot of bang for the bucks because these are really low budget uh, films. And even for the Disneyland sequence in, in Saving Mr. Banks, you can't really CGI anything out. You know, you're mm -hmm. working. You guys had one or two days in Disneyland? We had two half days at Disneyland. They allowed us, so what they, we were there for two days where they had a later opening. So basically we had run of the park from 6 a.m. to 11 a.m. And then we, on one day, they allowed us to shoot the merry-go-round. And then, so we shot there for a day and a half. So the first day that we were there at 6 a.m., we did um, Emma Thompson and Tom Hanks walking down Main Street, which was redressed. The beauty of Disneyland is they have all those old posters. They've, they've kept everything. Walt Disney invented branding, right? He was the guy that said, I'm gonna re-release Bambi every five years. This company, they don't throw anything away. They were amazing at, oh yeah, we'll pull out the posters, right? So suddenly it's all there. Uh, so we had a morning for walking, that whole sequence walking down Main Street, and then we went to the merry-go-round and we shot on the merry-go-round. And I think we, you know, these are not long days. We finished in the middle of the afternoon. And then the next morning we had the front. Where, yeah, where they come in. Where they come in. And again, that was, we had, you know, so when we, I think when we finished it that day, John and I went out, to, we had obviously gone and scouted the front before, but we really went out to the front and said, okay, with the assistant director, okay, here's how we need to do this. We've got two cameras, let's bink, 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 bink. And then remember at 10 o'clock, park opens and well, we were well planned. Before we start wrapping up, I just wanted to ask about Jurassic World as well, because I think one of the most interesting aspects about that is, you know, no pun intended, the aspect ratio discussion. So I'm a 2-4-0 guy. Colin is a 2-4-0 guy. Well, he was a one eight five guy, but he obviously, most young directors really do see, how can you not fall in love yeah. with, all you gotta do is watch the opening of Apocalypse Now, right? And you go, I wanna shoot it, I, I want that. But Steven was adamant on, um, it being 185, but Colin was, Colin, who's from the generation of your generation, which is this, this sort of display generation, said, wow, two to one would be really a great format. It's actually a better format than 240 for non-traditional cinema, right? For instead of going to the movies. And I remember, so I was, a, I apprenticed with Vittorio Storaro on Tucker. So I was there with him for 65 days of shooting when he was doing Tucker up in the Bay Area, just there making notes and asking questions. And Vittorio was pushing through for this standardized format called Univision, which was a two to one format. So we wouldn't have multiple ratios. Everybody would just shoot two to one. The nice thing about two to one is it gives you a little more width. So suddenly in framing, it, do, it feels wider than it really is. And suddenly you're composing with it and you're like, wow, this is kind of good, I kind of like this. But it also gave Steven the headroom that he wanted, right? Uh, and I loved it. I mean, and we did, so I, we have a movie coming out in June called The Book of Henry yep. that we shot. In 2-1. 2-1 as well. Now 2-1 would have been impossible in the era of projected film, right? Just for the same reason that Super 35 was impossible because you would have had to make a mask for every projector in America. So if you wanted to release a movie in two to one, you would have had to make 25,000 little 
pieces of metal that probably cost $25 each to make, but to ship them to every theater and hope that every projectionist is smart enough to put it in. With digital projection, you can it's easy to do. So if the theater doesn't set up the screen borders exactly right, you have a tiny little black bar top and bottom that nobody notices. But you're not asking them to come up with a different format. It's the two to one aspect ratio is put in what's called a 185 projection container. So it didn't cost anybody anything. We did send out a little piece of paper that said, hey, if you notice when you project this movie, there's going to be a little black bar top and bottom. So if you could just bring the your projector masks, you know, the, the curtains yeah. up and down a little bit, that's great. If you don't, that's great too. Doesn't matter, right? So that was, yeah. it was really Colin that was able to get us through that. And then because now negative is scanned, it didn't, it was no big deal. And also it gave ILM a little bit of room top and bottom in case they wanted to continue a tilt even farther into the digital world. Two to one has become, I think it's a great aspect ratio. The thing is that because of the way digital sensors record images and the pixels don't move, it seems as though young cinematographers are, are suddenly uh, driven towards these older lenses, right? Lenses that I would have never put on a camera that are so soft in the corners that have so many problems, but they seem to be what everybody loves, like the Canon K35s. In the era of film, when you shot on film and you released on film, you would spend two days at Panavision on a projector finding the sharpest lenses that you could find because you knew that everything along the process of duping the film was going to make it less and less sharp. The other thing is with film, the crystals are in a different spot on every single frame, whereas on a film sensor, the pixels are always in the same place, right? They never move on the on the sensor and they never move on the projector, which is why moray is an issue in digital photography and it's not in photochemical. So now the move to sort of tweak the look of digital cameras is to kind of use these older lenses. If I had known, I would have bought every set of K35s that existed in the world because you could have bought a set of K35s 25 years ago all five lenses for $2,000. Now it's $50,000 for a set, right? Uh, Super Baltars are back. Now they were gorgeous lenses. They shot The Godfather on Super Baltars, but in the 80s and 90s, this, the emphasis on lens design was faster, sharper, more contrast, more snap, more this. Now it's the opposite, you know, for digital photography. Uh, you know, you're going to go shoot a movie with the Panavision Primo lenses digitally, and then you ask Panavision to sort of detune them and make them not look so good, which is this ironic thing. The lenses that I literally would have said to Panavision, what are you doing? You ought to just throw these things away. Today are the lenses that get rented the most. Oh, wow. You know, all of your peers are gravitating towards old speed pancros, old lenses that... They're beautiful, don't get me wrong, but they were never good enough to make it through not only your dailies, but all the way through to release print. So remember, when you're making a movie and it's going to have 27,000 prints, you're making multiple copies of that negative. And each time you make a copy of it, you know, it's a generation less. So you're always trying to maintain the best looking image you could as far down the process as possible. 
it's now you don't have you don't have those same concerns anymore in with digital photography because everything is the same as your as soon as you go into the DI and you render the movie every copy is exactly the same I own a print of every movie that I've ever done it's in my contract right I have a die transfer print of Pearl Harbor my print of the rock is off of the what they call an EK print it's off the original negative of which you maybe make five or six prints every other print is made off of a duplicate of that negative that's the best looking print it's the best looking version of that movie that you can ever see and that's first generation so there's nine of those in existence every version of uh force awakens now that it's being uh duplicated digitally is exactly the same as every other Seabiscuit, which was released on film, I sat in a room and I watched 3,000 prints. There's a special, there was a place here in West Los Angeles that had eight screens going. And I would literally look and I'd go A, 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 B, B, that's a C, reject it. So the best theaters in the best of, in the big cities would get the A prints. Wichita, Kansas would get the B print, right? So the Village Theater in Westwood would get an A print. The Grumman's, the Man's Chinese would get an A. Uh, the big theater in New York, uh, whatever it is. But, and then if you were in some, if you were in Ames, Iowa, you might not get the A print, you'd get the B print. We literally, me and the editor and the director sat there and watched every print that went out and ranked them. So I can't let you go without asking about another very small project you have come up, uh, which is the ninth episode of Star Wars. I, I remember seeing Star Wars when I was a senior in high school. And I remember the first time that Battlecruiser came in from the top of the screen and it changed my life. I mean, it was like, and I am a huge lover of Star Wars, although I'm not a fanboy to the degree that other people are. But I can tell you that to be able to do the very last of the original nine is the greatest honor in my career. And I, what I can say is, and Colin has said this is, um, we shot about 30% of Jurassic World on 65 millimeter film. And I did that, again, to give ILM a larger negative to work with. Yeah. So even though the shot was the same shot as 35, there was so, and having done Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, I understood the definition of the leaves and the trees and the colors. And remember, 65 is five, four times as big as 35. So it just has that much more ability to see all of the shades of green. Colin has basically said, tweeted to the world that we're shooting the last Star Wars on 65 millimeter film. But it's a very exciting thing to, to get to do. And, it's nice to work, uh, the production designer, Alex McDowell, and I came out of the propaganda film world together. So it's nice to get to collaborate again with Alex, whom I've always had incredible admiration and respect for his skills. So it's a great experience. I mean, I'm really looking forward to going to England at the end of the summer and starting up. Getting started. Well, we wish you best of luck with that. You've been thank very you. generous with your time, so thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I would like to thank John Schwartzman for being so generous with his time and welcoming us into his home to record this episode. Our conversation with John was recorded in May of 2017. 
when him and director Colin Trevorrow were still attached to work on Star Wars Episode 9, and have since departed onto new projects. Also, a big thanks to Greg Scamato, who composed for us the fantastic intro theme you'll hear every month on the podcast. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes with new guests, including composers, actors, and writers. I'm Brando Benetton, and you have been listening to Soundstage Access.